Good to see you tonight. Welcome to College Ministry at Mountain View. Uh, if you don't recognize me, it's because I haven't been here in like two months. Uh, but my name is Micah. I used to be in charge, and now I no longer am, which is the best feeling in the world. Uh, I just get to show up and teach sometimes. Uh, especially exciting because First Peter, what we've been learning from the last couple of weeks, is my favorite book of the Bible has been for the last couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm last couple of years, not just the last couple of weeks. It's a great book for the last couple of weeks too. Um, so I'm glad that you've been learning from it. I'm bummed that I've been missing it, but really excited to preach First Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, and it would be helpful if you have a Bible to have it opened because we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. But before that, I want to show you my water bottle. So I've got this sticker on it that says suffering is certain. I've got a picture of it here. Uh, as you can see, it's not a Christian brand. Uh, it's a military apparel brand called Stay the Course. I am not endorsing Stay the Course. They put a lot of things on t-shirts and stickers that I would not show you uh, ever, especially at a church building. But I really like this one. And I put it on my water bottle uh, to remind me to go to the gym more. Um, but the longer I've been a Christian, the more it makes sense uh, when it speaks to the reality of the Christian life. There's a lot of suffering that we are going to face, and you've been learning that in First Peter, right? The whole book is about how to suffer well. You're going to face suffering because you live in a broken and sinful world, and things are just messed up around you. You're going to face suffering because you are going to face the consequences of your own sin, not just other people's. And, as we're going to see tonight, there's a unique suffering that you will face simply because you are a Christian that you wouldn't face if you weren't a Christian. And 1 Peter, this whole book, is trying to teach you how to suffer well. When you are struggling, what are you supposed to think? What are you supposed to do? How are you going to answer the sort of questions that I don't know, connect with your anxieties and your fears? How can you keep yourself from being angry or bitter at God? All really good questions, and Peter answers all of them in the book of 1 Peter. And so tonight, I'm going to read all of chapter 4 in one go, 19 verses. I know that's a lot for a Thursday. But as we read it all the way through, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read these verses with me and just try and pick out what types of suffering Peter talks about. So let's do that. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Finally, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Anybody count how many times Peter uses the word suffer? Well, I did, six times. And he describes two types of suffering, those who suffer because of their sin and those who suffer because of their faith. So let's look at that first one. Put up the first five verses again. He uses the word Gentiles here, those who live according to their fleshly and sinful passions, not according to God's will. And he lists out this whole list of their passions and how they're living. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And he says that if they don't change, if they don't accept Jesus, they will face the judge of the living and the dead. There's a future judgment coming for them. But I think we could all say there's also a current reality of suffering in their lives, right? I mean, that's the reality of the campus you live on. That's the reality that many of you are currently living or came out of through faith, or at the very least, what many of your friends are experiencing every day, right? Uh, I was talking to this older pastor a couple of weeks ago, and he quoted some statistic, and I don't know if the number's right, but the heart of it is right. He said that so many young men, teenagers and 20-year-olds nowadays, have no interest in a committed romantic relationship, let alone a physical relationship, because they get all their sexual pleasure from porn, and they get all their sense of adventure and work through video games, and then they medicate all that depression through weed. Yeah, I see a couple of nodding heads. You know people like that if you aren't that person. That sounds a lot like suffering to me. And this was absolutely the world that I came out of. Now, I'm going to throw this picture up that I would not show on a Sunday, but I thought you guys could handle it. Okay, nobody take a picture of that, all right? 18-year-old <laughs> freshman Micah, Montana State University, with a half gallon of vodka and a Keystone Light, which was the majority of my nights. Now, this guy might look happy. He's not happy. Let me tell you, this is what I think about when I read chapter 4, living in the passions of the flesh. And not even because I wanted to, but because this was the only reality I knew. 
I didn't know anything else. I didn't know that there was a greater way and forgiveness for sins. And so I could tell pretty funny stories about when I was a freshman, and a lot of you have probably heard that, but it was a really bleak time. I mean, I flunked out of college. I lost a lot of friends because of my drinking. I pretty much lived on a dorm floor for four months, not a dorm that I paid for or was slotted to be in. (laughs) Eventually, that led me to the army, which led me to Christ. But the world of living in passions was really bleak and full of suffering because I had to face the current consequences of my sin. And whatever your story is, whether it looks like mine or not, we all have to face the consequences of our sin. And if you don't repent and turn to Jesus, you will face the eternal consequences of that sin. That's the first type of suffering that Peter describes here. But then he has another one. Here in verse uh, 16, he says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, Now, that might sound a little weird, right? You suffer simply because you're a Christian. But look at what Peter says here. Verse 13, you will share Christ's suffering. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Back in verse 4, he says, when you don't join the Gentiles in their sin, you will be maligned and slandered and persecuted. Back when I was 18-year-old Micah in the dorms, there were these two older, like, junior, senior guys that lived on our floor, and they kept inviting us to Bible studies, and I thought they were really weird. (laughs) We made a lot of fun of those guys. That's exactly what comes to mind when I read these verses. And now, it's like 13 years later, and I'm like, oh, those guys were a part of a college ministry just like this one, trying to share hope and peace and salvation with us, and we just made fun of them a lot. There's a particular type of suffering and persecution and slander you will face simply because you are a Christian. And that makes sense, right? Like, ain't nobody going to make fun of you for your faith if you don't have any faith, right? So here's the million-dollar question. Here's what Peter is getting at. We know that suffering is certain. We live in a broken, sinful world. We are going to face the consequences of our sin. We are going to face persecution and slander simply because we're Christians. And the question is when we suffer, when we face trials, when we face tests, when we suffer because of our sin or because of our faith, what should we do? How should we act? Here it is. Peter summarizes it actually really well for us in the very final verse. Chapter 419 says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You want to know what to do when you're suffering? Trust God and do good. That's it. If you walk away with nothing else tonight, that's what I want you to walk away with. Trust God and do good. And trusting God starts, like everything else, with what Jesus has already done. So if you look back at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, what way should we think? How did Christ suffer in the flesh? Think back to what you've been reading and learning over the last couple of weeks and read this in chapter 2 with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 20, but we'll start in verse 21. 
Peter says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You want to know why? Because this is what you have been called for. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says in chapter 3, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The only reason that you can have the mind of Christ is because he bore your sins on the cross. He suffered once for sins. The only truly righteous and perfect man to ever live who died for the unrighteous. Why did he do that? So he could bring us to God. And that's the gospel, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life. And because of his love for you, what did he do? He suffered. He took on our sin. He died the death that we deserve. He took on the punishment that we are owed. And he offers to bring us back to God. Believe in him. Believe in his offer of forgiveness for sin. Simply have faith in him. And when you believe that message, this is what you receive. A new life, a new heart, a new desires, new passions, and a new mind. All gifted to you and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter is talking about here in the beginning of chapter 4. Learning how to suffer well begins with faith in Christ, which directly affects your mindset. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, since he unjustly suffered and died for you, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. Think the same way that Jesus thought, that doing God's will is more important than suffering. And in fact, that doing God's will will result in suffering. But remember this, if you believe in Jesus, you are different. You are changed. You are no longer living for sinful passions, but you're living for God's will. And just as Jesus obeyed his Father's will and suffered, so are we. You no longer live for God's, for your own will, but for God's. And this is God's will for you. Again, verse 419, that you trust God and that you do good even in the midst of suffering. And I said this before, trusting has everything to do with your mindset, right? With how you think. So first Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Consider doing God's will as greater than facing suffering. And then he says this in verse 7. The end of all times is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know what that means? There is a mindset that prays and a mindset that doesn't. In fact, it seems like Peter is implying here that someone who is self-controlled and sober-minded prays differently than somebody who isn't. 
Is that a weird thought? That somehow how you are self-controlled and how you are sober-minded affects your prayers, which means that affects the power that God grants through your prayers. Your prayers matter, which means that your self-control and your sober-mindedness matter. But that's not all that Peter says in 1 Peter about being sober-minded. you got to remember that this book is a letter, right? And nobody would read like one paragraph of a letter and been like, eh, that's enough, and set it aside. Of course, you'd read the whole thing. So Peter has a few other things to say about what it means to be sober-minded, and I don't want you to miss this. So here's what he says about being sober-minded all the way back in chapter 1. He says this, chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. I want you to lean in here, especially if you consider yourself an anxious and fearful person. If you struggle to believe that God is good and that he's powerful and that he's in control of your future, I want you to lean in and think about this. Preparing your mind and being sober-minded, you do that so that you can be hopeful. Prepare your mind, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace that's in Christ. If you're not a hopeful person, This is how you get there. Hope doesn't often come naturally. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to be sober-minded. It takes work to set your mind on the promises of God. To read in chapter 4 that uh, the fiery trials that you face are part of God's will, that they're not a surprise. Being sober-minded means thinking about those promises and those truths of God and doing the work to believe them. And that doesn't come naturally. Being sober-minded first affects your prayers. It also affects your hope, which directly affects your fears and your anxieties and how you live in peace and joy in Christ in your day-to-day life. Here's what else he says. All the way in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know what happens when you aren't sober-minded and when you aren't watchful? Your enemy devours you. The temptations and sins that Satan puts in front of you are too enticing to walk away from. And you know what that leads to? Suffering. Suffering because of your sin. If you don't strengthen and control your mind with self-control and sober-mindedness, Here's what Peter is saying. You won't hope, you won't pray, and you won't have power to resist the devil. Take this so seriously. Don't waste your mind with alcohol and drugs and worthless things that dull your senses and keep you from seeing the reality of the world around you. Because that's what it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded, right? It means to be alert to what is happening in the world around you. Being self-controlled is the opposite of what you read in the beginning of chapter 4, right? It's the opposite of living in your passions and your flesh. And being sober-minded is the opposite of what? Drunkenness, right? When you're drunk, you can't judge situations properly. You can't act appropriately. You can't respond to emergencies. 
You're unaware, you're oblivious, you have no idea what's happening around you. You know, a couple of months I was on the phone with a girl in the church who had gotten a really scary call from a friend. A friend had said some scary things, said goodbye, it sounded like a suicide call. So she called me and we prayed about it. She called another close friend of his. And you know what that guy had to say? Nothing. Because he was drunk and he had no idea what was going on. And his friend had called him to say goodbye to him as well. And he didn't remember anything about that conversation. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like to not be self-controlled and sober-minded in your life. Because there's some pretty big things at stake here, right? All the souls of all the people living in their passions and suffering in their sin who don't know Jesus and don't know his offer of forgiveness and a way out of being enslaved from sinful passions. And those people need you. They need you to be praying for them. They need you to be sharing hope with them. They need you to be living the sort of life that can resist the devil. And you need it too, right? You need to be praying. You need to face temptations head on. You need to be sober-minded for the sake of your hope and your mind and your peace and joy in Christ. So strengthen your mind. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace that God has given you. And pray. Be alert to the world around you and how God would have you respond. And be so alert to the temptations and sins that your enemy will throw at you that would lead you away from the peace and the joy that God promises you when you arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ does. And with that sort of mindset, a prayerful, hopeful, resisting the devil and trusting God kind of mind, Peter tells you what to do. Verse 8. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then what should you do? Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. When you suffer, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, and then act. Love earnestly, show hospitality, and use your gifts to serve others. You know what that looks like? When we have a community of people that love one another earnestly, that means that all the small slights and offenses and misunderstandings They just don't matter anymore, right? All those things are easily forgotten and overlooked. When we love one another earnestly, it's easy to assume the best about people and not assume the worst. And it's easy to show hospitality earnestly and without grumbling, right? Here's what that means. Do you love the people you don't have to love and do you invite them into your life? We're not talking about your close friend group. We're not talking about your family. We're talking about the people that you have no business or reason to love and invite into your life. Do you do that anyway? And you have so many opportunities to do that, right? That's what we talk about over and over and over again if you're in D groups here, that Thursday night is a chance to show hospitality earnestly to the visitor. Your classroom where everyone feels awkward is a place for you to sit down and ask somebody's name and greet them. 
your homes and your apartments and your friend groups and your Friday nights, all opportunities to show hospitality, to invite people into your life earnestly and without grumbling. We love well, we show hospitality, and we serve using our gifts. And Peter mentions two gifts here, those who speak and those who serve. As I was thinking about this, that really encompasses all gifts, right? Everything that God might use to bring himself glory through us is kind of covered in those two gifts. Those who speak and communicate and sing and write and those who serve in any sort of capacity. Now, I've been doing this long enough and I've taught on gifts enough that um, I know that the majority of college students feel like they're not gifted at all. Every once in a while, we do like a spiritual gifts training, and I ask people, hey, on the pendulum swing of you thinking that your gifts are more important than everybody else's gifts, or that your gifts don't matter at all, where do you think most people place themselves? It's over here, and that your gifts don't matter or don't exist. I promise you that God has given you gifts. Literally, anything you do that can be used to share hope and to serve one another, let's just say that's a gift. And God's given it to you for a purpose. And he says that right here. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We serve for his glory. You speak for his glory. We plan Thursday night programs and late nights for his glory. Now, I'll say one other thing on gifts. Uh, When I was 23... I had no idea what my gifts were. Uh, I was a high school small group leader here at the church, and all that meant was every Wednesday night I sat in a small group with like six or seven high school boys counseling their problems. And I thought, you know what? I'm a really good counselor. I'm really gifted. I think I'm going to be a counselor. So I switched out of my major, and I switched into clinical psychology and counseling. Now I'm 32. You know what I hate doing? counseling. And I'm not very good at it. And anybody in my D group could tell you that. And it wasn't until I got invested and started serving in all these different areas of life where I realized, oh, you know, the things that I thought I was gifted at in life, I'm really not very good at. It's okay if you don't know how you're gifted. It's okay if you don't know what you're good at. Just get involved and start serving. And in fact, I love that Peter shares show love earnestly and show hospitality before he talks about gifts. What that means is loving one another earnestly and showing hospitality to one another has nothing to do with your gifts. That's the command and the call for all of us. No matter how gifted you are, no matter if you're extroverted or introverted, big party guy, not a party guy at all, you have opportunity to show love, to show hospitality, and to serve for Christ's glory. And here's the result. When we do this, when we stay self-controlled and sober-minded, when we show love earnestly, we show hospitality, we serve using our gifts, you want to know what happens? Sometimes you're insulted. Sometimes you're maligned and slandered and persecuted for your faith. That's what Peter says here. Sometimes you love the people not in this building and not in faith well, but when you choose not to join with them in their sinful passions, what do they do? They malign you. They insult you. 
Verse 4.14 says it again, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, sometimes you can do the very best job to love the people around you, and what you will receive is suffering in return. But I want you to see the bigger picture in 1 Peter, all right? Because trusting God, being sober-minded, doing good while you suffer doesn't always result in malignment and insult and suffering. Sometimes it results in people coming to know Jesus. That's all over this book. Look at these verses up here. It says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify God on the day of glorification. And sometimes this is the will of good that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And sometimes when you have a good conscience and you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ are put to shame. Sometimes you love earnestly, you show hospitality, you serve well, and people insult you. But sometimes you love earnestly, you show hospitality, you serve, and you put their ignorance to shame. You silence their insults, and some of them come to know Jesus and glorify him on the day of his visitation. That's what we aspire for. That's what we work towards, the salvation of those who watch our lives and see that something is different and ask why. You read that last week, right? We always hope to have an answer to give people when they ask that we can share this hope with them. So here's the final question for tonight. How will you respond when you suffer? That's been a really uh, appropriate question, and this has been a really appropriate passage for me to think about this week. Josh, you can put that picture I gave you up. So this was me last night. <laughs> a lot of you know this. I really struggle with sleep. Uh, exhaustion during the day is probably the biggest non-sinful problem in my life. And it has been for 17 or 18 years. And last night, I finally got uh, approved to have a legitimate sleep study. That's where I was all last night and today. So last night, I just slept normally just with like 60 wires on me. And then today, I took five naps, one every two hours where they like checked out all these things about me. Pretty exciting. But pretty nerve-wracking too. Because this has been the largest piece of my life, my largest non-sinful suffering event that I've faced for almost two decades. And it's really easy to get down on that. It's really easy to get discouraged. It's really easy to want to get angry or frustrated or bitter at God. Because I want good things. I want more energy to love well. I want more energy to share hospitality on more nights of the week. I want more energy to serve with my gifts. And sometimes I can't do that. And the question that I have to ask myself is, how am I going to respond in suffering? And your story probably isn't this story, but I bet you have to ask yourself that question too. When God sends fiery trials and tests your way, as he says in chapter 4, how will you respond? Here it is, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Will we trust? Will we fight for sober-mindedness and self-control? And in the midst of all of that, will we continue to do good? You can trust God in your sufferings. You can trust him in your trials and your tests. You can trust God the Father. You know why? Because Jesus trusted God the Father. And in fact, Jesus trusted his Father enough to suffer and die for you. In fact, Jesus trusted his Father enough to entrust his spirit to his Father. 1 Peter chapter 2, what did it say? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In fact, uh, that's the last thing Jesus says before he dies on the cross. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after saying this, he breathed his last the last words that Jesus spoke before he was resurrected was affirming his trust in God. And because he did that, so can we. Because Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, we through faith can die to sin and live to righteousness. Because Jesus trusted his father and suffered, we can have that same mind of Christ. Because Jesus was wounded, we are healed. And because he entrusted himself to his father and died for us, we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen? Let me pray. Father, there's really nothing else to say except we trust you. And Jesus, we just praise you as the one who uh, was reviled and suffered for our sake. And that you bore our sins on the cross that we might share in your suffering so that we can even share in your glory. And Father, I just pray that you give us the strength to do just that. Would your spirit rest upon us as Peter says here. And would we fight to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, for the sake of our hope, for the sake of the people around us. Jesus, would you just give us minds that are hopeful and not anxious and fearful? Would you give us thoughts that are prayerful and not spiraling? Would you give us the courage to face down temptations? And in the midst of all of that, would we trust you? Would we love well? Would we show hospitality? Would we serve with the gifts that you have given each of us individually? And Jesus, we just praise and proclaim you as the one who purchased all of this for us. And would we um, just sing and worship and would the songs that we sing now just be um, of worthy and glory of you, Jesus. We love you. We trust you. All this in your name. Amen.